Hi there, my name is Michael Lawler, naturopath and acupuncturist, and this is the We Thrive Podcast, where we discuss the latest health topics and how we can take control of our own health and well-being, because we believe that when you take control of your own health, you can live well, live happily, and live long. Now, today, I'd like to talk about our digestive health. We all at some point or another in our lives experience some form of of digestive discomfort that can range from mild to pretty severe. But more often though, this is something that happens sporadically and usually to do with something that we've eaten or maybe it's a bacterial infection in the gut. Um, But what about digestive symptoms that are actually there all of the time? I mean, for instance, do you feel bloated after a large meal? Uh, maybe it feels like the, the food is not moving in your, in your digestive system. You feel full up in your abdomen. Maybe some food might come back up into your mouth, a bit of regurgitation, or you get heartburn. Maybe you get cramping pain in the abdomen and pass a lot of wind. Maybe you find yourself that you have to run to the bathroom. Does it feel like your gut maybe is twisting and contorting and moving out of shape? Or maybe there's constipation one week followed by diarrhea the next. Are you finding it tough to lose weight? Or maybe you experience issues like sleepiness during the day, falling asleep after a big meal, brain fog, or a feeling that you're dragging yourself around each day. Maybe it's difficult to get up in the morning out of bed. Maybe there's poor skin and poor hair quality. And sometimes even eyesight can deteriorate. And then there could be bouts of depression and anxiety. Well, I mean, if you suffer from some of these symptoms, or maybe a lot of them, you could be one of the 10 to 15% of people worldwide that suffer from a digestive condition called irritable bowel syndrome, or for short, IBS. It's the most common condition seen in primary care clinics worldwide. IBS can be responsible for so many other conditions that we sometimes experience and maybe we feel are quite normal. I mean, you could have IBS and not know it. Because this digestive unease that you're feeling, it might be normal because, well, it might feel normal because you've lived with it for so long or you just expect that this is the normal way things are. And I mean, these are the lucky ones. that You're lucky because at the other end of the scale, IBS can severely impact your day-to-day life. I mean, IBS affects one in five people in Ireland. That's a huge amount of people and up to 45 million Americans. And doctors, well, they don't know a lot about what causes this gut disorder and finding a treatment that works can take time. And in the meantime, you can get other health problems too. But I I, want to stress, none of the complications are life-threatening, okay? IBS doesn't lead to cancer or other more serious bowel-related conditions. But it can cause some conditions that uh, you might experience. I mean, impacted bowel. If you're constipated for a long time, stool can get blocked in your large intestine or your colon. Sometimes it can get so hard that you can't push it out. This is known as fecal impaction. It can hurt and it can be painful and cause things like maybe a headache, um, nausea, vomiting. It happens very often with older adults. Um, It can cause food intolerance. Certain foods can make your IBS symptoms worse and can cause it. 
what they are can be different for everybody, but uh, some people feel better when they cut out the obvious ones like wheat, dairy, uh, coffee, eggs, yeast, potatoes, and citrus fruits. And fats and sugars can make the diarrhea worse also. And then you're probably thinking to yourself, what can I actually eat? That's a lot of symptoms. But I guess if you're on the opposite end of the scale with IBS, um, these are some of the sacrifices you may have to make. It can cause malnourishment. So um, you're, you're not absorbing your food properly, no matter what you eat. So cutting back on some types of foods can ease the symptoms. But your, your body may not get all the nutrient that it needs because you're, you're, you're not absorbing and also you're not taking in the foods that are causing it to get worse. You can get hemorrhoids, which are swollen blood vessels around your anus. Um, very hard or very loose foods can make the situation worse. If the swollen vessels inside your anus, if they, they might fall out far enough to stick out, so it can be quite distressing. Pregnancy complications can come from IBS. Hormone changes and the physical pressure a baby puts on the bowel wall can cause digestive issues. Many women also choose to stop any IBS drugs they're taking during pregnancy, and this can be better for the baby, but it can make moms to be more likely to have things like heartburn and indigestion, which are very common during pregnancy. Your quality of life can be really affected because flare-ups can happen without warning. Okay? And a flare-up is when the situation gets really bad and you have to run to the toilet. You may have diarrhea for a time and then be constipated. And you know, because of this, not being able to predict how you feel can make it hard to go about your daily life. Um, it may be harder to focus at your job. And then there's this looming idea of depression and anxiety linked in with the gut. And we know as natural practitioners that this is a huge thing. Psychosomatic influence on the body is a, is a real thing, a real scientifically measured thing. So depression and anxiety can cause IBS, okay? And it can make IBS worse. If your symptoms are bad, you may find yourself always trying to map out the nearest bathroom where you go in your day-to-day -day life. And this can be a real problem for, for, for a lot of people and a reality. Now, the causes, as we've said before, um, I suppose the mainstream medical approach to IBS is that they don't really know what the cause is. It's been investigated. But um, if you look at your lifestyle from a holistic point of view, maybe we should look further than just this digestive system, okay? So here are a couple of things that we believe may be causing it. Okay, how are we eating? Are we present and are we aware? I guess that means, are we eating distracted? I mean, we're supposed to start off um, the digestive process in the body by looking at food. When you look at food, you have um, salivary amylase and some secretions in the mouth start to get ready for food. Your stomach starts to produce hydrochloric acid. Your small intestine gets ready with enzymes. So if we're elsewhere, i.e. if we're on our phones or if we're working, if we're eating while we're working, okay, these digestive secretions, they're not happening, okay, or they're being dampened down. So it means that the food is not broken down and we're sending it down in an un, I suppose, not an unready form when it hits the small intestine. And that just causes stress on your digestive system which can then lead to IBS, we believe. Um, what about alcohol? I mean, binge drinking, there's a lot of studies on this, binge drinking leads, or overconsumption of alcohol can lead to IBS. You know, uh, and this could be a problem. I mean, it can be hard for people to open up about alcohol consumption. But alcohol consumption is a huge contributor to IBS symptoms. So maybe you want to take a look at, um, at where your consumption levels are at. I mean, we've done posts in the past about the, qu uh, the quantity of 
let's say, red wine that you should drink in a week. And it's quite strikingly and um, different than what we <laughs> we might think. I mean, uh, I, I guess it, it, there's a huge uh, grey area around what we can and what we can't drink. But really for health, and really, if you do suffer from IBS symptoms, this is something that you need to ta- take a look at. Just, um, you know, and with a bit of support, I mean, with your partner, if you live together, uh, have a look in general at, at what you're drinking and see if you can make a change um, if you're suffering from some of these symptoms, okay? When do we eat? That's another hugely critical part of IBS. What are our eating errors? I mean, we're going to expand on this very, very important point later on in the podcast, okay? Uh, we may have increased intestinal permeability. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that your your your, your intestinal wall, which is which is the protection and obviously the uh, the means of transport by which all your nutrients in your food get across into your bloodstream, this might be a little bit more porous or open and not as tight as it should be. Okay, and this is uh, this can lead to conditions like a leaky gut, where there's proteins and certain food types that get across into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there and set off an immune reaction in the body. You know, or you may have an, a gut flora um, that's, not, uh, that's not where it should be. I mean, we're going to have later conversations on how our microbiome, the bacteria in our gut, are, are affected these days, in particular from indiscriminate antibiotic use and excessive cleaning practices nowadays. So we're losing this microbiome that's so important to us. <clears throat> Just on antibiotic use, two in ten antibiotic prescriptions issued by GPs may be inappropriate, according to research. And they've gotten slapped on the knuckles for this over uh, in the past couple of years uh, from the EU. Because antibiotic resistance is a growing public health concern. And efforts to reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing are really urgently needed. I mean, this practice of indiscriminate prescribing has either directly or indirectly led to the creation of these superbugs like MRSA, which are resistant to most antibiotics. As a matter of fact, in studies, you know, we're trying to find something that kills MRSA. Well, there's a huge body of evidence that's showing that simple things like apple cider vinegar can actually have a huge impact on killing MRSA. But still, you know, we really need to, uh, to look at the way antibiotics are being prescribed for people um, that don't actually need them. Okay, so stress. I mean, stress and, you know, naturopathically and and as a Chinese medicine practitioner, stress and the liver um, is a huge thing. I mean, our emotions really affect the way our bodily systems work, okay? And in particular, stress and irritation, frustration, anger, all of those things have a real impact on what the liver actually does in the body, okay? And this means that we can have an upset with systems that are very close to the liver, uh, including our digestive system, okay? And then the sleep. What about our sleep? Poor sleep leads to poor detoxification of the body and also means that uh, cell repair, which happens in the deepest sleep, is diminished. I mean, we need to be repairing our organs and the cells that make up our organ systems at night. And if we're not getting to that deep REM sleep, I said before, we're not going to repair and get ready for the next day. And this can have an impact as the years tick on. I mean, there are foods that can aggravate IBS. Okay, foods, uh, if, if you're having symptoms, fruits like apples, apricots, blackberries, mangoes, cherries, peaches, plums, um, watermelon, pears, all of the good foods, uh, good fruits that we eat may trigger IBS. Isn't that amazing? 
vegetables and leeks in particular and artichokes, or like regular artichokes and Jerusalem artichokes, cabbage, asparagus, cauliflower, garlic, mushrooms, onions, snap peas, snow peas, all of these fig, uh, foods may trigger IBS. And again, this, the question again is, what am I supposed to eat? Well, if you're suffering from a heavy dose or a heavy bout of IBS, these are the foods that you may want to uh, avoid. Now, there are things like um, there's, uh, the FODMAP diet, if you research that. This, over time, will give you symptom relief, and that means cutting out all of these trigger foods. You know, at first, this is okay, but it should be short-term, because think about it. You need those foods. You know, you need to be properly nourished, and the foods that you're going to cut out on the, on the FODMAP diet, which I'll tell you about now, are, are necessary. Okay? Um, like we said, onions and leeks, and particularly fruits that have stones in them, like peaches, okay? Dried fruits, and of course, fruit juice concentrate, which you should avoid anyway. Beans and lentils, wheat and rye breads, dairy products that contain lactose and milk. This is a, a that can be a big um, contributive factor to IBS. And then nuts, including cashew nuts and pistachios. And then sweeteners and artificial sweeteners, which we should not be taking anyway, okay? Um... So these are the foods that, um, that uh, you'll be put on, on a FODMAP diet uh, to try and ease your symptoms of IBS. Okay, now you're going to ask me, on uh, uh, things we can do, what can we do? Well, we can increase um, the diversity of the bacteria in the gut. Okay, and how do we do this? Well, very simply, through our vegetable intake. If you take in all the colours of the rainbow, right, Obviously, avoiding those uh, foods that we spoke about earlier for a start, but we need to go back to all the colors of the rainbow. Okay, and then you're, you're guaranteed that you're getting in proper plant fiber, which is a good prebiotic to build the bacteria in your gut. But also, by getting all the colors of the rainbow in, all the colors of the vegetables, we get all our sufficient mineral and vitamin intake that we need. Okay, so you don't need to take your multivitamin as long as you make sure that you get all the colors in, okay? Now, you could start to include probiotics into your diet. Okay, and this is, this is going to be uh, for a later podcast where we'll expand a lot more on this. But in particular for now, prebiotic foods. And simple prebiotic foods are oatmeal, which is porridge, um, raw garlic, if you can handle it, honey is a great prebiotic, onions, and then the king of all, apple cider vinegar in, in the morning in some warm water. Okay, what else can we do? Well, we can manage stress, for example. Like we said, the liver doesn't like to be stressed. We can manage our stress through exercise or meditation. This can help, and we have more on that later. We need to do everything we can to protect our microbiome, I said earlier. Our friendly bacteria in our digestive tract that govern a lot of our bodily responses. We need to protect this because we can't do without them, okay? There's a book out there that's called 10% Human, okay? And... Essentially what they're saying in that, and it's, it's from a PhD in England, uh, scientific research is showing that if you count the amount of cells we have in our body versus the amount of bacteria, we are outnumbered by 90% to 10%. That, to me, is, is, a, is an amazing statistic. Okay, also, periods without food are good for our microbiome. Okay, so, I mean, let's cut back the window in which we eat. Let's have fasting built into our week. Ayurvedic medicine, which is the ancient Indian medicine, says don't add anything to the oven after you've started baking. I mean, if you start to bake a bread, you're not going to start throwing something else in 
a half an hour later. And it's just like that with our digestive system. Put the food in and let the, let the digestive system break it down or cook it in an oven. Let it break it down. Don't add anything else, okay? So try to cut back on, on, on the snacking and stay with your big meals. I mean, this microbiome is like a new lawn. Don't walk over it until you've planted it, until it started to grow. We need time to reset and repair, so don't walk over the lawn. And then you can have longer fasts for, you know, for worsening symptoms of IBS. So maybe you can have 16-hour fasts during the day where you only eat for eight hours. Okay? Now, the, most, um, the research that I'm really, really interested in of late is the research around the circadian clock. I mean, the research into the circadian rhythms in our bodies have been groundbreaking, to say the least and are making us relook at the way we now view how the body works in relation to this clock. With regard to everything, you know, with regard to sleep, with hormone creation, hormone release in our bodies, the times that the different organ systems do their work, and how our digestive system functions are all aligned to this clock. And interestingly, this is nothing new. I mean, the ancient Chinese and the in- ancient Indian medicine practices from almost 2,000 years ago, have this circadian body clock at the core of their medical teaching. I find that fascinating. So now we have the benefit of modern research and study directed at ancient traditions, which can only be good news. It would be very foolish of us to write off the ancient wisdom. Now, I want to tell you about some trials that were conducted by uh, Dr. Sachin Panda at the Salk Institute of biological studies in the US. Dr. Panda is the leading researcher in the field of circadian rhythms and the author of the great book, The Circadian Code. For those interested, I really, really recommend reading this book. It's full of fantastic, amazing, up-to-date information in relation to the circadian rhythms in our body. So I'd just like to talk about one research project that he did. Um, They did a research project on three groups of lab mice. And they provided these, they had these three groups and they provided the same food for all the three groups, okay? Group one were given access to the food 24 hours a day, which meant that they could, they could eat 24 hours a day. Group, uh, group two were given a 12-hour access and then group three were given 8-hour access to food. So the mice just fed as they wished in the group one. In group two, they, had this, you know, they were only given the food for 12 hours a day. And in group three, it was eight hours. Now, after four to six weeks, what were the results? Well, the ones who were eating all day long, well, they developed obesity, they developed diabetes, they developed heart disease and IBS and a host of other conditions, okay? The 12-hour window group, well, they lost some weight, right? But they were much healthier, much healthier than the, uh, than the first group. But the eight-hour window group, they lost more weight, they had better energy, shown by running on the, uh, on the mice wheel, for an extra two to three hours per day, and they displayed amazingly none of those chronic conditions, those big symptoms like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, and IBS, none of those symptoms that the other two groups had. Okay? After the uh, experiment, they dissected the mice, and they found that the microbiome of their guts was almost pristine in the 12 and the 8-hour groups compared to the 24 a day, 24 hour a day group. This is really 
astonishing, as it is a game changer when it comes to nutrition going forward. I mean, the thinking before this research was the standard approach of calories in versus calories out for weight loss. You know, but this research is beginning to be, to, to be flipped on its head. I mean, human trials are ongoing, so this is a very exciting space to keep an eye on, if you're a practitioner in, in particular, or if you just have an interest. So the most obvious choice for us is 10 hours. Okay. So if you take anything out of this podcast today, if you can keep your eating to a 10-hour block during the day, you're going to improve your IBS symptoms. You're going to improve your health full stop, and your microbiome. So what does that mean? That means, okay, so let's say you start eating at 9 a.m. in the morning, okay? Your last meal then at night should be 7 p.m. Okay, what does a meal mean? Well, it, unfortunately, it means almost anything, you know, uh, including your tea and your coffee. So um, milk and tea and coffee or honey or sugar in tea and coffee causes the body to start uh, breaking down you know, your food. I guess the problem is the reason why you, you need to wait an hour to eat before you wake, right? And that's because melatonin is produced in our bodies, all right? So it's produced at nighttime as light falls, and it, it's our sleep hormone. It causes us to sleep. But what happens is melatonin hangs around the bloodstream for about an hour after we wake. And one of the jobs of melatonin is to shut off the pancreas secretion. So what's happening is we're not getting insulin released into the blood in the first hour uh, that we wake in the morning. So therefore, whatever we take in, and in particular anything sweet, it's not going to be acted upon by this insulin. So our blood sugar levels can rise, okay? Which means that our body goes into digestive mode and other modes to try and get rid of this. So it's very important that we don't eat for the first hour after we wake. We can have some warm water, maybe we could have some herbal teas, but nothing with milk or sugar and no caffeine, okay? Now fasting, Fasting, most cultures and religions have regimes of fasting because they know the benefits gained from this very simple practice. Okay? Now, out of all the approaches to minimizing the symptoms of IBS, I mean, I treat IBS a lot of the time in the clinic, and we can get good results. We can sometimes get great results. Um, but you know what? I really believe, and as all of these podcasts will say, that you need to take control of your health yourself. So let's take this approach. Let, let, let's go for this 10-hour window in which, um, in which we should keep our food consumption. And then for people that are not suffering from IBS symptoms, maybe we can work on a 12-hour window. Okay? Look, we could talk about this for hours, about all of this. I mean, I find the area of gastrointestinal health and all the current research absolutely fascinating because it's backing up a lot of what we would have learned in college to do with our ancient medicine traditions and naturopathic traditions. We really are going through a paradigm shift in the way we are approaching eating and consuming our food in the 21st century. From organic to versus genetically modified food to different diets to the circadian rhythms, you know, the research into healthy fats and the major importance of our microbiome. It just goes on and on. And all of these digestive conundrums we've been dealing with for decades are beginning to become clearer each year. Well, I hope you take some of the advice presented here today, especially if you are an IBS sufferer. You really can change your health by taking control of it yourself. Put the work in. Don't rely or expect health professionals to fix everything for you. Yes, we can go so far, okay? 
but you need to take control. It's time for you to take control. For you to go back to the normal way you've been living isn't working. It hasn't worked thus far. And like I said, as practitioners, we can ease the symptoms and sometimes to a great degree we can help. But your help is of paramount importance because when you take control of your own health, you can live well, live happily, and live long. Well, thanks for your time today, everybody. Uh, please join me next time on the We Thrive podcast. Take care.